today's sermon will be 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I, have, I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as, those who, as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This ends the reading of the word. You may be seated. Let's pray once again before we look at the text. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for life in Christ. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to understand the word. This text, we pray, you grant us the grace of understanding and ability for me to communicate it by the power of your spirit. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> Marriage and present distress. It's the title of the message. Uh, the Apostle Paul had brought the gospel to the city of Corinth, um, a city given to debauchery. He ministered there for 18 months. He writes his letter, this letter, from Ephesus, uh, because after he had left, the Corinthians had several questions about several matters. Apparently, they had sent him a letter. If you notice verse 25, now concerning. Now concerning takes us back to verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Where Paul opens with that Corinthian slogan, that Corinthian motto, verse 1, that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is, to not have sexual relations with her. Um, that had become their first century kind of bumper sticker theology. Arguing that celibacy within marriage ought to be practiced, which was simply a reflection of their hyper-spiritual demeanor. You know, hyper-spirituality is often um, typical of zealous, immature Christians. That's where, you know, you get, you know, gold dust prayer ministries come from. Um, 
zealous, um, ignorant young Christians, or, you know, they, they, they're off in a corner speaking gibberish, and they call that their prayer language, um, young, um, zealous, hyper-spiritual, and then to, to prove that it's a gift of God, they take something typically out of 1 Corinthians, misapply it, when actually um, it, it, Paul is speaking of those kinds of things as a rebuke, not as support for that type of thing. But here, um, at the time of the church in Corinth, there were conflicting views um, within the church there regarding marriage. Um, among Jewish people, for instance, um, it was held that marriage was indeed a religious duty. Marriage, raising a family, was a religious duty. Um, if one was to be truly faithful to God and truly spiritual, um, he was to marry, to raise a family. A single celibate life was not counted in their eyes as being pleasing to God. Other believers there in the church at Corinth had adopted the philosophy of dualism. They adopted this from the Greeks, believing that spirit was good and matter was evil. That is, the physical was, was evil. Therefore, um, if a person was to be truly holy, um, they would deny themselves of all physical pleasure. And as a result, some in the church there began to practice celibacy and, and separation in marriage, thinking that was a better way to serve God. Paul rebukes that, of course. Now, the other extreme um, was the libertines who held um, a very loose view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You know, whatever you want to do, after all, you're free in Christ. Do as you will. So whether it's marrying or divorcing or remarrying, you know, um, you can do it at your will, the libertines. And then, of course, there, there were the legalists, now, legalism is applying God's law um, in the wrong way. And the legalists there were arguing that when one was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and their spouse had not converted to Jesus Christ, um, in order for the believer not to be defiled, they should divorce. So in chapter 7, Paul um, is addressing um, all of these conflicting opinions that were floating around the church there. He's addressed the married, the unmarried, the demarried, those in spiritually mixed marriages. Regarding the singles, he says quite simply, look, a life of chastity, it's a good thing. If you have that gift. If you don't have that gift, get married. Okay, marriage is for life. Divorce is unthinkable. In a spiritually mixed marriage, believer, remain in the marriage if the unbelieving spouse is willing to dwell with you, remain as you are. However, if the unbeliever wants to depart because of your faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, let them go. You're no longer bound, and being no longer bound, you've now been set free to remarry in the Lord. Now from there was that parenthetical discussion to trust, rest, and, and be content in the providence of God. Okay, that is, um, in addition to calling us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has placed us in specific stations of life. He says, when you're called to Christ, remain in that station of life and serve the Lord there. He said, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. Serve the Lord there. I mean, if you can free yourself, free yourself. That's great. Otherwise, serve the Lord there. Were you called while circumcised, while uncircumcised? Circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. Serve the Lord there, verses 19 to 21. Concluding, as we did last time in verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. 
Now, his point is that unless God, in his providence, provides you a new vocation, bloom where you have been planted. Amen? Now, that that doesn't mean we we shouldn't seek to better ourselves or or to find another vocation. He's just saying that, that, look, all stations of life are blessed by God. They're all sanctified by God. Unless, of course, you work in a local pagan temple, uh, you might want to think, uh, actually, you need to change jobs, right? Apply that as you will. Okay, now, we come to this last section of the chapter, verse 25, now concerning virgins, okay? Are they to marry or not to marry? That's the same phrase that we see back in chapter 1. He's addressing a question or an assumption raised by the Corinthians. Now concerning. Paul feels it necessary now to, to bring clarification and qualification to this question or assertion, and he's providing some great pastoral counseling here. And let me say this. Um, If it were not for the obligation um, of consecutive biblical exposition, as we're given to here at Pacific Hope Church, um, there are certain passages um, I'd never look at to preach from. This is one of them. Verses 25 to 40, um, they are attended with, with several difficulties Um, interpreters and translators um, have found it to be very challenging to get an idea um, of what I'm talking about. Um, Just one example. If you look on the screen, um, verse 36. But if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. um, Let her Mary. Now you'll notice the word daughter is italicized um, in that verse, um, which means it's added by the translators to bring clarity to the text. And yet, this is an example of where an addition um, does anything but bring clarity. Okay? Um, the emphasis here falling on the father's role um, in the text is possible. But as I'll show you as we work through, I think it's, it's unlikely. Okay, now the ESV, notice, the ESV translates it, um, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. The NIV I'm like the ESV, if anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he's not sinning, they should get married. Okay, so one view is that virgins are daughters. Another view is that the virgins are the betrothed, They're they're simply engaged young women. A third view is that virgins are both men and women because the Greek word parthenos can be masculine or feminine. So I I believe it to be um, these virgins are, are the betrothed, they're engaged young women who would typically be engaged to virgin young men. Okay? Okay, now... Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Okay, now again, in other words, all Paul means by this is that Jesus never directly addressed this situation, okay? So Paul, the apostle, qualifies why his opinion accounts, notice, for he is one by who the mercy of the Lord has been made trustworthy. And therefore, as an apostle, chapter 1, verse 1, called by God as an apostle, he writes by divine inspiration and not by mere human insight. 
Do we have this? Okay. And after all, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we read that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then in chapter 3, Peter writes that some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. Okay, so why then is Paul's trustworthy opinion being given in this very challenging text? Well, in order for us to properly discern the meaning of difficult texts, and this is a principle you ought to apply in your own private Bible study, is that we must search the text for clues in order to unfold its thrust. To look for certain terms within a difficult text that might identify us uh, for us the sphere that is the context in which Paul, or whatever writer it may be, is giving his counsel. And I believe that we find that clue in verse 26. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. So I, I think if we were to understand this passage, this is going to be more of a teaching than preaching this morning. Uh, but I, I think as, if we're to understand this passage, we must interpret it, verses 25 to 40, in its entirety to this phrase. Present distress. Okay, th this is one answer to the Corinthians' inquiry regarding virgins, the betrothed, that is, the engaged. Are you with me? All right. Okay, and that is considering this present distress. Considering this present distress. A another little hint, verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. Or as the ESV puts it, um, the appointed time has grown very short. Appointed time. This present distress. Verse 31, um, the form of this world is passing away. That is the, the fashion of this present age, Paul's day, it's passing away. Okay, now, okay, hang on with me. In verses 32 to 35, when, when Paul talks about the unmarried, okay, being concerned um, about the things of the Lord, compared to the married who must focus on pleasing their spouse, he seems to be advocating that single life is more spiritual, it's better for serving the Lord. You may read it that way, but that's simply not true. However, okay, however, in certain circumstances, it is better to remain single. And everything that Paul says, including okay, that section, verses 32 uh, to 35, must be read in context to the counsel of this present distress. Now, present distress... Sounds like persecution, amen? Present distress sounds like persecution. But the, the problem with that is that historically, there was no systematic persecution of Christians in Corinth at this point in time. But there would be in just a few short years. Now, the word present, by the way, verse 26 um, is just too strong of a translation because the word actually means impending, okay? Impending distress, something that is about to break in. Um, it's not yet present. It's at the door. It's knocking. It's looming. 
this impending, impending distress. Anake is the word. Anake translated violence in many parts of the New Testament. So there's impending violence is what he is referring to. And it's a word that speaks of tremendous difficulty. It's a word that speaks of great tribulation. Now, some believe that Paul is talking about the trouble that comes when you're intimately involved, that is, you're intimately joined together, that is the marital union. Um, it points out, many of them point out that it's two sinners living closely um, together that is this present trouble, just two sinners in the same household. I mean, is that true? Yeah, because we're very selfish. But I scratch that as far as interpreting this text. Now, there are those who believe Paul um, is referring to the trouble that all Christians face in all times. That is, this, this present distress that comes against God's people wherever they are in a world that is hostile to the gospel. Is that true? Definitely true. But in light of context here, I scratch that. You don't have to scratch it. I scratch it. I'll try to prove my point as we work through the text. Do with it as you will. Now, others believe that the present distress is Paul's belief that the second coming of Christ was very near. They believe that Paul thought Christ would return in his lifetime, and present distress refers to that. I don't believe Paul thought that Christ was going to return in his day, which I don't have time to prove or, or to defend from Scripture. I could, but I won't, so I scratch that. Another view with regard to this impending distress refers to the events, the upheavals, the tribulation, the earthquakes, and all that, were, that would occur in the known world as predicted by Jesus Christ that would accompany his time of coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The time that the age of the temple and the age of the priesthood would be ever, forever swept away in his judgment. Through the Roman forces that would come, and from there, or even before that, a persecution would sweep across the entire empire, the Roman Empire, including Corinth. Okay, that is the birth pangs, you know, that Jesus spoke about in the Olivet Discourse that, that comes as the new era of the church takes flight, extending to the four corners of the earth. You know, when Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse of his coming, he was using Old Testament terminology. He was using Old Testament imagery to refer to the time when he would come in judgment upon the apostate nation of Israel, the present form of this world at that time. And he spoke about the signs preceding that day. We're going to look at it in just a moment. There'll be false messiahs. There'll be wars. There'll be rumors of wars. There'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes in various places. They will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. And guess what happened during this time in which Paul writes this letter shortly thereafter? There were wars and rumors of wars. There was earthquakes. There were famines. And they were put to death. So turn, if you will, to, to Luke chapter 1. We'll look at Luke's. account of the um, Olivet Discourse. Verse 5. While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, 
As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? Okay, question what things? What things? Things regarding the temple, okay? Those things. And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see to it that you're not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. First before what? Before what? Before the temple's destroyed. Amen? But the end does not follow immediately. The end of what? The end of things regarding the temple. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues, famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, what things? Things regarding that temple and his beautiful buildings. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. Delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. I will lead you to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. Death, yes, but not a drop of spiritual harm will fall upon you. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. That is, you'll be eternally secure. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near, and then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the, in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land. That's the exact same word he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And wrath to his people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, Dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves. Men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it. You know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, what things? Those things pertaining to that temple which they asked about. Recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation, what generation? The one that's listening to me speak. Will not pass away until all things take place and amen now when jesus said you know he'd be coming in, in clouds here with with great power and glory when they see that that is not a reference to the second coming that's a reference to daniel from which we read earlier this morning that is the consequence of christ's enthronement 40 years after the fact the fulfillment of daniel 7 they will recognize it on that day. That's exactly what Jesus said, by the way, to the high priest who interrogated him that night. You remember that? When Jesus was being interrogated, Mark 14, he said, you will see. That is, you will perceive. At that moment, you will understand. You, you will see him in the sense 
That is, you will understand, you will spiritually perceive that everything that that temple symbolized is done with, and it's all found and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true temple of God, who's now enthroned. This temple has been dethroned. He has been enthroned. You will perceive on that day when this thing is coming down and not one stone is left, you will perceive and you will understand he is seated on the throne. That's what that means. Coming into the clouds to the ancient of days, fulfilling Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. That's why I read from that earlier. Okay, which means the destruction of Jerusalem was the demonstration to the nations that Jesus Christ has ascended to the glory clouds of heaven, has taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Verse 32, Luke 21, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all things take place. Well, you may sit there and you say, well, yeah, but, but that was with regard to Jerusalem. These people are in Corinth. Okay, well, remember this. Regarding this great distress, many civil wars broke out throughout the Roman Empire. There were numerous natural disasters that took place. And from 15 years after the time Paul penned this letter, 15 years, and he wrote it in 55. In 15 years after the fact, the first general persecution of Nero would break out against Christians throughout the empire. And Erastus, remember the name Erastus, he was the city official of of Corinth, we read, perished, history tells us, he perished in the persecution that came upon them right there in Corinth. That shows us that this looming, impending distress did indeed come right into the city of Corinth, and when that persecution began for the church, it lasted decades. Are you with me, beloved? Okay. So that statement, verse 23, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. You know, friends, that is really a wonderful passage on Christian liberty, by the way. Christian liberty. The Lord has given no commandment on this, nor do I. Okay, the issues are plain. Marry or don't marry. Whether you marry or not, you haven't sinned. You're at liberty to marry. Okay, in view of this present distress, context, in view of this present distress, you're free to marry if you want. Weigh your circumstances concerning what? Concerning this present distress. Verse 26, I think then that this is good. That is most expedient. In view of the present distress, that is the impending tribulation, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Okay, remember, Paul had been with him for 18 months, and you can be sure of the fact that he taught the Lord's Olivet Discourse to these people. So they knew what impending distress meant. That's why he doesn't define it. He, he, he doesn't need to. So Paul's counsel to virgins, those who are unmarried, in context to this present distress, that the upheaval, um, uh, impending civil wars, tribulation, all those things of which the Lord spoke about in his Olivet Discourse, it's best that you remain unmarried in view of this impending distress. So he says, look, my advice is, look, if you're single, consider it a blessing. Because you will not have the fear and the dread under this kind of pressure that comes when you have a wife and children to worry about. It is better. Now, since someone at the church there, they would have, they would have heard this being read out loud, corporately sitting together, Paul knows that someone might begin to consider, um, in view of the present distress, well, then why don't we just get divorced? Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? In view of this present distress, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. 
Even with impending distress, the counsel remains the same. Husbands, wives, do not divorce. God hates divorce. Don't get divorced. Remain as you are. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, you can be released, remember, in one of two ways. You can be released in one of two ways. Verse 39, that is by way of death. If you're widowed, and also, we saw when an unbeliever departs, you, you are released. You're no longer bound. Verse 15. And also, as Jesus said, in the case of adultery, you're no longer bound. Verse 28. Okay, under those conditions, uh, but if you marry, you have not sinned. If you've married, you have not sinned. If you're loosed from marriage, you've been released and if you remarry, you have not sinned. And he says it with apostolic authority in, life of, in light of this impending distress. You're free. If you want to get married again, go ahead. In light of this impending distress. And notice, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to spare you, he says, in light of this impending distress. So it is good, in view of this present distress, to remain unmarried. If you do marry, you have not sinned. So he's giving advice, amen? He's giving pastoral advice, considering what's to come. That which will give you the least amount of pain. He's trying to spare them from that. Now, the word trouble is pressure. That word trouble is, is, is pressing together, like the pressing of olives. Painful. In other words, people who are married have a tremendous amount of pressure heaped upon them in times of upheaval, wars, tribulations, persecutions. They have much more trouble. Now, there's certainly pressure on a, on a single person under persecution, amen? Of course there is. But a man responsible for his family to protect, to care for, and, and to nurture that family has much greater pressure heaped upon him. In times like this, I'm trying to spare you. Philosopher Francis Bacon, he once said, quote, children, sweeten labors, but they make misfortunes more bitter. When things are good in life, Working in, in, in normal, you know, societal situations, family life is sweet for the most part. But when disaster strikes, famine spreads due to persecution, you are forced sometimes to watch your children starve to death. That's pressure. And under persecution comes famine, typically. The pressure of having to hear the cries of your children as they're dragging you away by way of persecution. You have more trouble in the flesh. I'm just trying to spare you of that. Writes Paul. They have much more pressure than those who are not married. In other words, the common course of life is turned upside down. Everything is upside down. The married will be forced, okay, if you're married in times like this, you will be forced to some degree to live as though you're not married. It could be taken away. And those who would normally weep in times like this, they can't even take the time to weep. Look at the text, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep, right? Situations where you would normally rejoice, you can't rejoice in times like this. This kind of distress, this impending distress, 
cannot rejoice, and those who buy are, are not able to enjoy what they possess. Verses 30 and 31. That's always true in times of war. Times of persecution, famine, or disasters that our Lord predicted in the Olivet Discourse. Verse 31, for the form of this world is passing away. Form means fashion. Okay, that is the outward fashion of this cosmos is passing away. That is, friends, what he's saying, the fashion of this particular age. All the normal cultural elements, they're passing away. Distress is looming. And a change like this comes about by way of distress that is persecution, war, social upheaval. So in such times, in such times as that, it's better not to be married. That's what he's saying, I believe. So in context to that, verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried isn't concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So in times of peace... There is absolutely no contradiction in pleasing the Lord and your wife, pleasing the Lord and your husband. Amen? There's no contradiction in that because there's biblical harmony in that. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is the ordinary course of ministry. Amen? The ordinary course is for a man and woman to marry and to have children and to raise, that is, Christian families, to, to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. That's the ordinary course. So he's not saying that a single celibate life better serves the Lord and his interests. He's simply saying that under distress, under this present distress, you won't have divided concerns when they come. The married people will. So when the persecutor's coming for you full force, you're being threatened, threatened to be taken away, men imprisoned, taken away from their families, your life is on the line, it will be much more difficult having to consider that wife and those children than if you remain unmarried. Or as Ray pointed out this morning, there's an increase on the persecuted church of women being persecuted. And then that mother, say she's a mother, having to concern about leaving children behind. Verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you. In other words, I'm not trying to put a noose around your neck, okay? But to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I'm just trying to advise you. In light of impending distress, so that you may serve the Lord without any distractions. Do we see it? Verse 36. But if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his, and the NASB puts it, virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, that is her prime, and in biblical times, your prime in the, in the mind of most people was 20. <laughs> and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin if he, lets, if, he, if he hands his daughter over, if indeed Paul meant fathers here. She does not have the gift of celibacy, in other words, and nor does her suitor, okay, her fiancé, even in view of coming distress, let her marry, or, or let them marry, 
They love one another. They want one another. Even in light of this impending distress, you have not sinned if, if you let her go. Christian freedom in light of impending distress. ESV, I think, is better, verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire, his passions, under control, and has determined this in his heart, not by outward restraint, but determined in his heart, to, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well in light of this impending distress. So if you decide otherwise, right, between the time I write you, Corinthians, and the impending distress, verse 38, he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Or the ESV, verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed, betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better in light of this impending distress. And then he addresses the widows, verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Verse 40, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And again, I believe it's in context to the impending distress. And I think that I also have the spirit of God. Well, what is that? That's called sarcasm again. Why? Because he's giving them wisdom. He's giving them godly, practical advice, spirit-led advice. He's saying, my judgment, remember chapter one, my, I do not come with the mere wisdom of man. He made that clear in chapter one. In other words, I'm not spouting the wisdom of words, but the wisdom of Christ, as called by God an apostle, chapter 1, verse 1. So I do believe I have the Spirit. He says sarcastically. Okay, teaching us that there's no less service to the Lord for those who are married with a family than there is for those who serve him as one who is single. However, however... In times of distress, persecution, there is greater pressure for those who are married. And those who are married typically have families. Greater pressure. See, friends, this is the wisdom. This is the wisdom the Lord has given to us that during turbulent times, such as those who lived during the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecution that broke out throughout the Roman Empire, this is wisdom given to them for that time. So you may sit here today and say, you know what, this doesn't really apply to us. Again, let me say, it's not about you. If that's how you think, it's not about you. In many parts of the world right now, this is exceedingly applicable. Because there are more Christians being executed for the gospel of Jesus Christ today than at any time in church history. Did you know that? You can just go ask Ray. It's very possible that we might have to face this kind of distress in our own lifetime. Or perhaps, if not in our lifetime, it's very possible that you, some of you young people, you young people, are you listening? Some of you young people, after we're gone, you'll have to go cite 1 Corinthians chapter 7, pull it up on the website, if it's still around, and listen to it and apply it when questions of marriage and family arise in light of this kind of impending distress. Unless the Lord brings forth a great revival. Because we just don't know. They had prophetic insight. We do not. You know, we live in a, in a land with a measure of freedom. Amen? We do have a measure of freedom, the greatest in the world, really. That's come, coming to an end, it seems. 
Those kind of freedoms are being eroded away. Little by little. And we do not have a direct revelation as they did with regard to the words of our Lord and what would occur around 70 AD. But we do have this. Whatever may befall us, we have this. Same promise that Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse. You will be delivered up if you're delivered up. You will be hated by all people for my name's sake. You may be hated right now for the, for the namesake of Jesus Christ. However, however, whatever may happen to you, chapter 21 of Luke, verse 18, applies to you as, as well. Not a hair of your head shall perish. Whatever may befall you. Because in Christ, Jesus, speaking metaphorically, said this, that although you will experience death, you may not know how. Some of you will be delivered up and murdered, um, you know, cast out by your own family members, as some of the disciples on that day experienced. But if you're in Christ, you'll suffer no spiritual harm whatsoever. Because he came to take the spiritual harm. He came out of heaven and took on human flesh, upheld God's holy, righteous law, and then he was nailed to a Roman cross by sinful human beings in order, that is according to God's sovereign plan and purpose, to, to bear his wrath against sin and sinners, condemned, cursed, becoming sin, he who never sinned, so that by faith and trust in him, you actually become the very righteousness of God, but only in Christ. Therefore, whatever happens to you, not a hair of your head shall perish. Amen. If you don't know Christ, today's the day. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you too shall be saved. And when you take your last breath, not a hair of your head shall perish either. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this text. We do thank you for all of Scripture and um, I do hope, Lord, that, that this is a proper interpretation of that. Um, for the glory of your name and the edification of your people, we ask that you would bless it to our hearts this day. For Christ's sake, amen.